Thank you. Um, thank you, Professor Parkin, Warden, electors, ladies and gentlemen. I was delighted to be given the opportunity to give this um, series of lectures. And I want to start by giving you some more introductions. I'd like you to come to know one place and to meet four people. The mouse move. Just so you get to get an idea of the place, Cameroon, there's Nigeria next door up there. Then the grass fields, the broader grass fields, Pakistan there, and Sony, and then we get onto the T-car plane. And so Sony is a side road of a side road Oops. and then a very low resolution map um, just to give you an idea of scale that distance whoops I'm moving the mouse too fast from there to there is about a kilometer if I scroll down you can see the actual houses and the red circle is the house of Deco. Um, so that's a place. Whoops. Then. There is Deco. I should say um, about the village. It's got no running water. There's electricity only from a few intermittently running generators, and it's 70 kilometres from an administrative centre, 200 kilometres from a tarred road and a hospital. There's Deco, born about 1910, still alive in, two, in January of this year. Then um, we'll have two other people. Sandre Michel on the left as you're looking at it and Chief Degas Francois on the right. Um, Chief Degas sadly died two years ago. I would like you to meet also his father who was Deco's, um, Deco's husband. She was his first wife. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to trace a photograph of him. Increasingly, it looks as though whether or not photographs were ever actually taken, none have survived. And then, to complete this introduction, I want to try and play you a tiny fraction of sound recording, just so you hear Deco saying her own name. Okay, what she was saying was, and Ban said, Dico, 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 where is she? Dico, Dico, eh, at the end is an emphatic suffix. It's quite unusual to get, hear people ever actually saying their own name, and later in the lecture I'll explain why she came to say it. And 
I also want to report that in one conversation, after discussing rituals which were no longer being performed correctly or at all, she said, and here we have my translation, they should make a book of it and write it down. What we're saying should be written down. Then tomorrow, when we're all dead, they'll say, oh, Deco said this, Deco said this, Deco said this. In some of the lectures that follow, I hope I can do something to accommodate her wishes. In today's lecture, I will consider some of the theoretical background to this project and discuss life writing, biography and autobiography. I then give an abbreviated in introduction to the conversations which will be my main concern. In the second lecture tomorrow, I'll look in greater detail at the precedents for this exercise and the theoretical conundrums that they pose. Before that, I should say something about Evans Pritchard, in whose honour these lectures are given. In the archives of the Tyler Library at the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology, there's a special copy of Witchcraft, Oracles and Magic among the Azandi. It was printed especially for Evans Pritchard on one side of the paper only, leaving the reverse sides as blank facing pages to the published text. Here, he carefully copied in the Zandi texts that were given only in translation in the published form of the book. The linguist and anthropologist Margie Buchner, who has studied them, following her work with the Zandi in the Central African Republic, assures me that it's clear from these texts that he had a good grasp of the Zandi language. The inevitable lament that follows is, I'm afraid, a piece of technological determinism. If only he'd had a tape recorder. Without the means of recording sound, any text must be dictated or reconstructed, which creates considerable distance between such texts and their usual spoken form. As we now know, conversational exchanges have a structure of their own that is independent of the grammar of the language being spoken, and one that is all but impossible to transcribe, let alone analyse, without recordings of naturally occurring conversations. Just think what could be done with a set of recordings of Nua sacrificial oratory. In addition to the analysis presented by E.P. in Nua Religion, we could look at the, the fine grain of the oratory to see if there were any linguistic or grammatical clues that could help, uh, help illuminate or further nuance the analysis of controversial features such as equivalences between birds, twins, oxen and cucumbers. So... Having thanked the ancestors and made some introductions, we should now turn to my subject, life histories in general, and one Mambilla life in particular, that of Deco Madeleine. It was no small disappointment to me that when I sat down to prepare these lectures, I realised how little material I had. Confronted with the task of summarising and presenting um, presenting them to a critical audience such as that assembled here, all I seemed to have were some fragments from a life. When I listened to the tapes again, what had once seemed rich with detail, full of promise, was revealed to be full of holes, full of half-starts, the beginnings of stories which were never completed, or corrections which were made, and made so uncertainly that the listener cannot work out if they were maintained or not whether second or third thoughts prevailed. Worse still, 
there was a lot of very conventional talk that held today's youth up to the standards of the past and found them wanting. This doesn't seem very much for 18 years fieldwork. That old people moan about disobedient youth is scarcely a surprise. That much has changed since Deco was young is not news either. So what can we learn? I hope I will be able to show you some of the ways in which Mambila see themselves, their relationships, how they talk about these relationships. As well as reflecting upon my own inadequacies as, as a field worker, there are some interesting anthropological consequences of what was not said, as well as of what was in fact said. Despite my interest in ways of saying, in the ways that Mambilla speakers form words and utter them, there is perhaps, surprisingly for some, relatively little here that considers those words themselves. The constraints of writing for a non-Mambilla audience, the constraints of space and time available, mean that I have been led to focus more on the context and then to use this context to illuminate a few small examples rather than presenting an analysis of the spoken texts themselves. That we must leave for another occasion. Yet, the recordings establish the empirical foundations for much of what I have to say. My sense of assurance, perhaps I should say reassurance, that what I'm saying is empirically responsible, is secured through the tape recordings and transcripts that I've prepared of the conversations between Deco and myself and Deco and Sondwe and others. Their existence, available to my Mambilla-speaking critical audience, serves as a stop or corrective. In the back of my mind, as I write these lectures, has been the question of how I could justify what I say, not only to my professional peers here assembled, but also to my Mambilla critics. There's a further absence to acknowledge. Such are the requirements to contextualise and to explain that Deco herself seems to have escaped this text. The essential erasure or elision is the person themselves. However, the same can be said even of autobiography. Despite the approach of recur, people are not texts, and any attempt to reduce one to the other is doomed to failure. It's a type of reductionist failure. What I can do is gesture and sketch aspects of the person, along with fragments of the background to her life. Only once the wider context has been established can we get down to the details, although my understanding of that context has itself been established in part by reference to, and because of, problems with the details. To no small extent, they act as a ladder which I have scaled as part of my progress towards an understanding of Manvilla society. The challenge now is to see how much of that I can talk you through. This means that I can escape what Leela Abu-Lugod calls the relentless specificity of a concern with just one person and just one telling to a more general account of Mambilla society in the 20th century. What I hope to do is to use the conversations and stories told by Deco as the starting points for ethnographic exploration. So, in subsequent lectures, I will present a series of ethnographic vignettes, of which here in the introductory lecture, I can only present some abbreviated samples. I now briefly consider some contrasting approaches to life writing, 
which serve to orientate my approach. First is anthropologist as ghostwriter. One of Evans Pritchard's contributions to the study of kinship has been his elucidation of newer ghost marriage, whereby a dead man may still acquire legitimate offspring through which his place in the lineage is secured. Little is said about the men who are genitors. This has a wry parallel with my relationship to Deco's words. There are times when I fancy that my role in these lectures is, or should be, closer to a ghostwriter than a conventional anthropologist. And ghostwriting is an interesting way of approaching the task at hand, how to convey comprehensively the words of another, how to be true to their spirit and intention. And Philippe Lejeune might call this a heterobiography in the first person. Such a summary, of course, assumes that the spirit and intention of a set of words are easy to elucidate and unambiguous, which at times, at many times, is not the case. Yet, told that Audrey Richards recorded the life story of Buenbea in Marjorie Perham's 1936 collection, Ten Africans, creates far less confusion about authorship than, for example, surrounds that of Nelson Mandela's autobiography, in which the role of Richard Stengel can be given more or less prominence. Stengel gets a fulsome acknowledgement in the preface, but some regard him as the ghostwriter. It's an interesting idea, a useful idea to keep in mind. A ghostwriter is ostensibly anonymous, helping or enabling a busy or illiterate person to write their memoirs. Another term for this might be collaborative autobiography, which again Philippe Lejeune discusses, at least in a, in a footnote. He says this, In collaborative autobiography, the writer speaks of the as-it-were-he by constructing his role as autodiegetic narrator. The reader must forget the game for the, text to keep its play, for the text to keep its meaning. As anthropological readers, I suggest we need to, to approach such texts recognising their complexity, while at the same time bracketing off this recognition so we too can participate in the autobiographical pact in Lejeune's celebrated phrasing and take part in an autobiographical telling. My next stereotype is anthropologist as hagiographer. In their introduction to a recent collection, Reynolds and Capps distinguish between sacred biography, between sacred biography, which they use for the biography, biographies of the founders of religions, and hagiography in the strict sense of the word, the biographies of smaller or lesser figures in extant religions. More importantly for my argument, they talk of reconstructing the silhouette of a historical life, an intriguing idea to which I will return shortly. I mention the idea of hagiography in order to remind us of the dangers of a concern with a single life. It is all too easy to view Nisa as a feminist saint or Ogotomeli as an especially wise Dogon able to condense and explain an entire cultural system in a, few, um, in a few afternoons talk to Marceau Griot and his assistant. The danger is that we lose sight of people as individuals, warts and all. Humans who are described 
accounted for or explained, sympathetically or not, by biographers, my third category. So, anthropologist is biographer. Biography is an interesting model for the enterprise, particularly if one generalises out and, on the model of cultural translation, conceives of the anthropologist as a cultural biographer. There's a tension in that phrase that I relish between giving an account of a culture and giving an account of an individual. These lectures started with a set of conversations with one individual whose long and interesting life would be recognised by most Manbilla as long, interesting and exceptional, but exceptional in very obvious ways. And for all that, recognisably a Manbilla life and one that most adult Manbilla would empathise with. How little interested the young are in such lives is, of course, one of the oldest laments of the old. I can well imagine Deco's own grandmother echoing those sentiments, decrying the arrogance of youth, the arrogance of youth with its insistent ahistoricity. But that's to ride one of my own hobby horses. So, these three types of life writing serve as metaphorical extremes within and between which I try and situate my work. I've one further orientation point, a metaphor drawn from visual anthropology inspired by Reynolds and Capps, which is helpful to cons consider here. And that's the idea of the silhouette. A silhouette has a foundation in physics just as a photograph does. In the 18th century, silhouettes were produced by using a lantern to cast the shadow of the subject onto a glass screen from which it was drawn, then cut out by the artist. That's exciting. Um, oh, I can disable that. Right. Um, where was I? Right. Um, it, silhouettes have an empirical basis. What's it doing? Oh. Um, well, I'll leave that to, to entertain you. Uh, right, silhouettes have a, an empirical basis which, perhaps unlike a photograph, does not disguise or dissemble its artifactuality. There's no question of it being a representation of the subject itself. Oh, I'll shut it up. Um, there's no question of it being a representation of the subject itself, like Narcissus confusing the reflection in the water for a human. As Dave Reasoner suggested, it has more in common with the fate of Narcissus's shy lover, Echo, who can only repeat what is said to her and thereby evokes or elicits our recollection of the original source. A silhouette does not, like a photograph, pretend to be a simulacrum, so perhaps Perhaps contentiously, it has a different relation both to the person portrayed and to us, the viewers. All these different stereotypical kinds of life writing, ghost written, hagiography, biography, silhouette, serve to define in different ways the role of the anthropologist as translator, both straightforwardly linguistic and metaphorically cultural. Another important aspect further extends the linguistic dimension, the importance of, in Dennis Tedlock's memorable title, the spoken word and the work of interpretation. 
The spoken word must be transcribed before or in the process of translation. Our interpretation comes after. Whereas that of the parties to the conversation is immediate. If they don't understand, they say so, or signal it using conversational cues. Transcription forces a move from the interactivity and immediacy of conversational exchange to the fixity of words on on paper or words heard in the lecture hall. Whereas in the original conversations, Deco was an interlocutor, a party, a critical and central party to the conversations, now she risks becoming definitive. So she can seem to speak to the audience without the audience being able to talk back. Such problems beset all transcription. Voices change as they are written contentiously far more significantly than any shift which occurs when written words are translated from one language to another. Genre. The language of biography and autobiography is a genre by itself. I mean that in more than a literary sense. How one talks, the style or mode of telling, says as much as the words themselves. This assertion distances me from many of my illustrious predecessors. It represents a textual turn quite different from that of the anthropological postmodernists, such as Fisher or Marcus. Indeed, it is textual, but textual in the sense of textual scholarship, those supremely data-driven empirical disciplines in the humanities where much turns on fragments of texts, on manuscripts and their decipherment. Many interpretations are still possible, but they are constrained by the texts. I may add as an aside, I think the idea of constrained interpretation is a nice summary of much of the anthropological enterprise and other social sciences. If that's positivism, then so be it. However, this poses problems for an account in English addressed at a literate but non-Mambilla-speaking audience who are incapacitated by that lack. So that even were I to play the tape, to literally let Deco tell it in her own words, you would be none the wiser. Like it or not, I must trans- translate. As an academic, I must, uh, I must transcribe, and as an anthropologist, I must interpret As a student of Esther Goody and through her of Penny Brown and Steve Levinson, I want to stick closely to the words spoken, the way that Deco chose to speak about her own life and other Mambilla lives, such as that of her first husband, Chief Konaka. That this is impossible does not mean it should not be attempted, for in the attempt there is much to learn. We think our way through people's lives, our own first among them. As anthropologists, we attempt to consider other lives in ways both similar to and distinct from conventional Western biography and autobiography. Counterintuitively, in many ways, biographies can go further than autobiographies. They can report autobiographical revelation, but the research of the biographer can provide more information than an autobiographer may wish or choose to reveal. This includes the wider context which illuminates and is illuminated by the individual life at the centre of our attention. That person, not the biographer, becomes a sociological metonym, an individual token that allows us to comprehend a sociological type. 
Deco, like most Manvilla, is or was a peasant farmer, with little time or interest in academic philosophising. Chatting with her as we sit in the shade and crack open palm nut kernels, it's hard to keep up the front of being highfalutin. Much academic philosophy does not trance well into the languages of rural Africa. I must be careful to qualify such statements to make it clear that I've learnt more philosophy there than I ever did as an undergraduate studying philosophy at Oxford University. But literary theory, let alone postmodernist discourse or the jargon of subaltern studies, it's hard to convey in the Mambilla language. What I'm going to do in the work that follows is to present a series of vignettes from Deco's life. These illuminate her an aspect of life for Mambilla people on the Tikar Plain in Cameroon during the 20th century. They take us to religion, gender, power, kinship and the economy, which are all staples of an anthropological diet, and one that I hope Evans Pritchard would have enjoyed. As an appetizer, I'm going to consider some precedents for this exercise uh, enterprise. I'm going to discuss this in greater detail in the second lecture tomorrow. But first, I want to briefly think about um, some of the pre precedents. Voices, especially women's voices, used to appear all too rarely in the historical literature. Hence, the work of decipherment that Liz Stanley had to perform in order to rescue Hannah Colwick from the editorialising of her husband and employer, Arthur Mumby. This also explains why early diaries by men, and especially by women, are cherished as valuable documents. In anthropology, too, there are more men than women. For example, Marjorie Perham's Ten Africans contains only two women. And those women that do get to the page are distanced linguistically and more than that editorially. It's hard to get a feel for the personality of Baba of Caro from Mary Smith's text. The introduction to that book summarises her personality, and that summary I find more informative than the person, about the person than the text that follows, from which I get, I would say, more of a sense of Smith than Baba herself. Some later examples give hope. For example, the post-apartheid recounting of women's lives under apartheid in South Africa such as Elsa Joubert's Poppy Nongena, Margaret McCord's Katie McKenna, or their precursor, Rebecca Reyes' Zulu Woman, The Life History of Christina Shibaya. But Marjorie Shostak's Nisa is perhaps the best-known example, and it is with this that I start. Um, I've got a lot more to say about that, which I'll reserve for tomorrow. Mambilla are very different from Kung. Nisa is very different from Deco. The difference is exemplify much theory of biography and autobiography, and they point to profound cultural differences. Mambilla do not talk about sex in the same way that Kung do, and although extramarital affairs are common in Mambilla, as in many societies, it's my impression that they are not discussed, even with confidence, in the way that Kung women, not only Nisa, discuss them with Shostak and other researchers. In my opinion, the difference of culture and age are more significant than the differences of sex, although that, of course, has its role to play. 
for example, there are occasions when it's possible for foreign male anthropologists to talk to Mambula women about sex every two years during the performances of the women's masquerade, women's schwa. And although I've not talked dirty with Deco, and at least I've had the opportunity to talk very frankly about sexual matters with her. But for Mambilla of both sexes, adultery is a serious matter, and people do not talk about it lightly or usually at all. Marjorie Shostak contrasts her conversations with Nisa with her attempts to interview other older women, or older Kung women, and I'll give an example in tomorrow's lecture. She attributes the problems of her conversation with older women to age, but I think the problems also relate to the sort of self-perception that leads one to make narrative out of one's own life. Especially in societies without literate traditions, many, perhaps most people, do not do this, and Mambila certainly do not. To ask someone for the story of their life presumes that lives are or can be cast as stories, and this often is not the case. The conversations that I had, I've had with Deco, in which in 1993 I prompted Sondwe to have with her, are and remain artificial and somewhat strained. The Komarovs discuss the issue of the imposition of narrative structure and summarise the problem nicely in the phrase, biography is anything but innocent. This will be also discussed in tomorrow's lecture. So, the lectures that follow are not Nisa-like. In the absence of a narrative flow, I cannot let her tell the story merely in my translation. I must intervene as editor, as writer, as anthropologist. The text is mine. It relates not just to Deco, but to her children, the children of her co-wives, the village as a whole. And indeed, I think I could extend the field of generalisation to a larger swathe of middle belt villages between the cultural south and the cultural north of Cameroon, Nigeria and other West African countries. What this amounts to is to conflate Dilfi's contrast between narrator and historian. And I quote, The narrator achieves his effect by emphasising the significant elements of a course of events. The historian describes certain human beings as significant and certain turning points in life as meaningful. The narrative excellence that Nisa brings to her own life story is a good refutation of any simple or direct link either to literacy or education as determining factors. I'm not convinced that there is as profound or as general a contrast with the Western tradition as the Komarovs imply, but there is considerable variation. Mambila are not in the habit of constructing life histories. So it has to be relegated either to a general cultural concern or some complex combination of factors, including cultural concerns, literacy, education, which together can explain the concern for the individual in Western Europe and among hunter-gatherers such as the Kung and its relative lack among agricultural peasant communities of West Central Africa, such as Mambilla. So, now let me say a bit more about Deco and, and um, Somi. Deco Madeleine was born about 1910 during the German occupation of Cameroon. The old road was then still active, 
passing through Somme on its way from the colonial centre of Bali to the fort of Banyo to the north. She grew up with tales of German brutality, how her parents' generation had fled forced labour, just as her generation attempted to flee the forced labour exacted in lieu of tax by the French, who succeeded the Germans in that part of Cameroon. I've known her, well, for more than a decade and a half. Each time I leave the village, I say farewell, fearing that she will not be there when I next return. I'm happy to say she's disappointed me to date, although she's increasingly frail and in fact has not walked for several years. When I first went to Somme in 1985, I lived in one of her daughter's houses, beside and behind her own. One of her grandsons, Jonas Kuhn, was one of my main companions and language teachers in my first year. I started working in her house, pointing at things, first with my hands, then properly with my lower lip, um, and asking their name and purpose. Deco is one of the um, f- few people with whom I spent time then that I still spend time with now. Most of the seniors had little tolerance for the childish questions of a naive language learner. She bore them, though not without telling me very clearly when she was too busy or just too tired of me and my questions. And since then, we've graduated to matters of greater moment. For example, in the run-up to the biennial Nguyen Festival, elders of all sorts, even on occasion the chief himself, come to see her to check, confirm or receive instructions as to how the rites should be performed. And sometimes I feel that all I've done is join the queue, and hence that bit of the title. Deco's life history has given her knowledge available to few others. She was the first wife of one chief, the mother of another, and is the widowed mother of a deceased chief. And actually, as of June of this year, she is the grandmother of the new chief, Ndee Adam, installed on the 21st of June, 2003, my mother's birthday. Um, born in what is now Nigeria, she met and married Konaka, with whom she moved down to Somi village, then at its previous site. Later, Konaka became chief of the village, and Diko was the first wife of a chief who enjoyed a relatively long reign and effectively managed the transition from the yoke of the full bay lamadate of Banyo, to the, which is to the north, to the at times no less exacting tutelage of the French colonial administration, which actually also used full bay from Banyo as intermediaries. During this time, missionaries came to the Tikar Plain and the first churches were constructed. At first, they were regarded as being similar to the witchcraft eradication cults which regularly swept the area. But slowly, a more sophisticated understanding of Christianity developed. Deco became involved both in her own right, she's a devoted member of the Lutheran Church, and via her children. Her son, indeed, became a Catholic. As first wife of the chief, she played a major part in several traditional rituals. So she was one of those most concerned to establish a viable accommodation between traditional religion and the message of the missionaries. In December 1949, Konaka died, and in 1950, Ndi became chief, 
As mother of the new chief, Diko continued to have an important position in village affairs, although not an informally recognised role. Dee um, died in a car crash in 1953, and since then she has acted as the unofficial adviser to the seniors. By Mambilla standards, she was already mature at the time of Ndee's death. Now she's the oldest person in the village. When I first arrived in 1985, one of her great friends was Nji, a Bamum retainer of the chief who had become one of the ritual chiefs in charge of the biannual Nguyen ritual, which I've already mentioned. This ritual marks the instalment of a new chief, and, it, and when repeated every two years, it allows the chief to repeat his oath of office to be ritually strengthened during its regular performances. In 85, Nji was ill. He could barely walk. In fact, he died in 1986. But he and Deco would sit and bemoan the wicked ways of the contemporary world. At that point, Deco was still farming. She continued to maintain a small garden plot until 1995. But by the end of 96, she could scarcely walk. And it's quite odd, several of the oldest people, like Nji, then Deco, have ended up with atrophied legs, but otherwise in good health and some stay like that for years. The tape-recorded conversations between Deco, one of her daughters, and Sandre Michel, occurred at my instigation, and I've been working through them with Sandre over the years, slowly transcribing and translating. They contain fragments of Deco's life history, and therefore fragments of the history of the village. The transcripts prompted further questions, but I also want to use them to honour this one particular life. And these lectures are among the results of those conversations and my reflections upon them. By presenting the ethnographic context, which non-Mambilla readers need, distance is inevitably introduced, since Deco and Sondwe take the, the context for granted as unstated commonplace. And perhaps... This parallels the physical distance between Deco and those previously unfamiliar with her name, reading or hearing her words. The voice which I hope can emerge is that of an experienced and somewhat exasperated Doyenne who regrets the passing of the old order while still appreciating the new. She's got a place, Deco has a place alongside Afri other Africans who have helped anthropologists at different times and in different places. Muchona the Hornet, who taught Victor Turner much of what he knew about Ndembu cosmology, and dare I say it, Griot's key informant, the blind hunter Ogotomeli, who revealed the deep truths of Dogon cosmology to him. However, that's a slightly misleading comparison, for this is not a, an account of revelation at the instigation of Deco. She did not initiate the conversations, nor is there as much at stake the conversations are not about the central keys to the understanding of Mambella cosmology. They have a far more modest starting point in Deco's own life history, which has a considerable overlap with the recent history of the village itself, as I've already said. I can provide a commentary to help unpack some of the more elliptical sections, and I want to use the transcript as a peg on which to hang more ethnography. But there's an analytic point to make here. I believe that not only the history recounted by Deco, but also the manner in which it is told, 
reveals aspects of Mambilla society and importantly ways in which Mambilla understand their society. Although of course only Mambilla speakers can assess the accuracy of the translations, the use, the use of digital technology will enable the original recordings to be made available so the actual transcripts can be checked. A new range of criticism is opened up. At the very least, we can assess some of the basis on which this anthropologist has reached his conclusions about Mambilla society. This is where the theories of the ethnography of speaking and pragmatics in particular may be used to an analyse aspects of Mambilla society, such as their kinship system, gender relations, the forms of Mambilla chiefship and its development in the 20th century. What I wish to explore is how everyday speech forms part of the evidence for my understanding of aspects of Bambilla society. Both the content of the conversations and their structure, structure, not just semantics, but the way the conversation develops may help an account of how Mambilla society works. Not only can I discuss the meanings of words, but I can also consider Mambilla discussions of meanings of words. And the way in which such discussion takes place provides part of the basis for the sociological conclusions. Now, let me see if I can show you an example. Okay. So, I'll quickly read this in translation. Sondre says, What about your children? I was together with them at Chuawe's place. Diko says, and another one which I called Manandi died. That was when Kung was in my arms, when he was in my arms. And Ndee was like so, classic gesture, about knee high. Ndee was just little, Kung and another one that they called Noir. Sondre echoes, another that they called Noir. Another that they called Noir, who was just like Ndee. They were the same, Ndee was after him, Ndee that ju died just now. Those were my children, they were five. Day um, Dono was a um, brother of the chief um, who died in 1988. There is the genealogy, courtesy of Mike Fisher's software. Here's the genealogy uh, as recounted. But, if I can get this, here is the genealogy that I have recorded using the genealogical method. And rather than having five children, she has seven. What she has left out are her two daughters. It's in response to elliptical conversations like this that Rivers developed the genealogical method in the first place, the method that's been so central to social anthropology. What we can see in these conversations is a sort of nested knowledge about Dico's genealogy. Some of this knowledge, she presumes, is known to Sondre, the other speaker, and those assumptions are tested in a later passage. What strikes me is the contrast between the information in exchanges like this and the results of what I've done with using genealogy. What the transcript reveals is her own perception of her genealogy, the online editing she performs upon her own history, and that shows how she sees herself. And so I think the way that she was editing out all of her daughters 
and telling him only about her sons, although he asked about children, is significant. What she tells Sundwe is satisfactory in a literal sense. It satisfies him for the moment. It's adequate and therefore passes muster. What I want to attempt to do is to sketch the bounds of the muster ground. The sense of adequacy which is demonstrably shared by the speakers since they let it pass. It's literally unquestioned. Both Hondier and um, Bengam were alive and um, Hondier was living in the village when the the conversation took place. But Sondwe never said, but how come you've just said I've got five children, you've left out at least Hondwe, if not Bengam. That Sondwe was prompted in these conversations by an academic anthropologist then serves as an interesting test case. Insofar as he is able to make the questions make sense to Deco, we're in fairly standard territory of interpreting the text of indigenous informants. However, at other moments, both Sondwe and Deco struggle to understand um, what on earth is being sought. And then the conversation breaks down for these and other reasons. For example, at one point, um, Deco forgot that Sondwe was significantly younger than her, and um, in, he was in his 40s and she was in her 70s. Um, and, so she, and then she corrects herself and says, oh, of course, you weren't born then. Um, and at those points, you can see discursively displayed, as it were, parts of Mambilla's sociology, and it's those that I'm trying to synthesise to make explicit. So, um, after all these preambles, I want to present you with at least one story, one in which I will consider in greater detail in Lecture 4 next week, end of next week. This gives a hint of how gender relations are managed within, between and against an ideology that has it that men control women. When the man concerned is the village chief, then to cross him is a very serious thing indeed. Yet the same ideology has it that men and women work in parallel spheres and men should not interfere with women's business such as the organisation of their labour. Kinship, especially between A man, his wives and his mother can count for more than an ideology of domination. A woman may find, as Deco did here, that her mother-in-law, who I note calls her son's wives wife, a woman may find, as Deco did, that her mother-in-law can support her against her own son. So, it was dry season. After the sorghum harvest, in other words, about now. The time for thatching roofs. The chief's wives, there were five at this point, had started to re-roof Deco's house. Konaka said that he wanted to do the ritual pouring of beer on the graves of the chiefs, the next bam, the next holy day in the traditional ten-day week. So he said they should go and thrash some sorghum to make the beer. You can't do the ritual without the beer. Deco said, fine, yes, they do it at the end of the day. In the morning, 
they went off, the chief's wives went off to gather thatching grass for her house. Then, tired out from this, they collected some green leaves, spinach. Um, it's not real spinach. Um, and they collected some spinach fr from the field so there would be something to eat as sauce with the evening meal. Tired out from cutting and gathering the thatch, Deco decided that the sorghum could wait till the next day. Konaka was there on the veranda of the chief's palace. And when, when they returned, and when he saw that they hadn't obeyed his wishes, he grabbed his hippo-tail fly-whisk to act as a badge of rank. And as they walked by him, he struck the back of their baskets of each wife in turn. Pow, pow, pow. Deco wasn't going to be treated like this. She dropped her basket and ran after the bush, grabbed up her baby and ran out of the village, down the, down the, river toward, um, down the path towards the river. And there she stayed. She crossed the river to the far side from the, um, from the village and went into the bush and stayed put. Once it got dark, the others got worried and started to search for her, calling her name. And that's where the little bit of sound recording that I played you at the beginning came from. That was people calling for her. She hid quietly down by the river, gave the baby water, it was quiet, and then the next day she went back. And what she said was, they went back, she went back and they went out and got the sorghum. His mother, um, his mother told him off and then the story moves on. He actually started talking about how, um, about the different things he do with sorghum and women's labour. In a later lecture, I'll go through that story in more detail. But I wanted to give a flavour of it here, and I wanted to demonstrate how these personal stories can illuminate and transform the bare statement of sociological generalisation about a society. Um, I see this as being another version of anthropology's use of the case study and how some of the sociological significance comes from the storytelling itself. In the story as told, Konaka expressed his anger by beating the baskets of his wives. It's clearly a threat to actually beat them. Yet, the gesture, the threat, is typical. There's much talk of beating and far more gesturing than actual physical violence. It resembles the situation among the Kung, as described by Pat Draper, where one of the women she interviewed said, At first I refused to be married. I cried and cried. My father beat me and I finally married him. Draper then asked, Did your father really beat you when you first refused the marriage? Did he hit you with his hand or with a stick? The response she got was, no, he just told me by mouth. This is not to deny that wife or child beating does occur in Kung or Manbilla society, but it is less prevalent than the threat, gesture or storytelling might imply. Children particularly are continually being threatened by beatings, but in the only actual case I've witnessed, the child's cries swiftly brought the neighbours to the scene and they intervened to stop the beating. 
When Sondre originally told the story to Sondre, the intervention of her mother-in-law the next day was almost entirely implicit. But Sondre and her daughter, who was present, took the inference when Dico told it to them. Only when I was trying to understand what was being said and being alluded to almost ten years later, I had to go back to her house and ask yet again for a simpleton's explanation. And of course, that's one of the uh, privileges of doing long-term field work, that I've been able to go back and ask for um, further elucidation, in some cases time and time again, until I eventually get the, get the hang of what's going on. Um, some conclusions then. Anthropology confer confers an odd, unchosen immortality. It's a literary product, but a bizarre one. The names of a few individuals, Nisa, Baba of Caro, Ogotomeli, Muchona, are the obvious African examples. These individuals, these names, are sure to endure and be remembered into this century in ways in which perhaps most of their friends and contemporaries will not. Yet, historians working in European archives are accustomed to talking of individuals centuries dead and know them even to the extent that some historians can recognise the handwriting of, for example, Elizabeth I. She's a historic personality and much history revolves around her. But I write this in an age of subaltern studies which attempts to focus on the groups and people disregarded, ignored or disparaged by the ruling elites who were the exclusive concern of historians. And I write as an anthropologist. Often, as a byproduct of other interests, some anthropology may, contri may contribute to archives. Anthropologists create documents about those whose lives would otherwise be unlikely to be archived. In this sense, we accrete material for future subaltern studies, for future generations of researchers of many different disciplines. Deco may not have influenced Cameroonian history as Elizabeth did British history, but she deserves attention nonetheless. Hers is an important and influential voice on the stage of village politics, if not that of the nation-state. That said, working with Deco is not, for me, an archival exercise. As anthropologist rather than historian, the material I can archive remains a byproduct, however welcome. For me... The conversations with Deco, both my own and those which I have lovingly followed on tape, help reveal Mambilla society by revealing her own understanding of it. By understanding something of the way she sees the play of systems of power and authority without ever using such terms, and how they have changed over the last century, we can understand Mambilla society a little better. And I hope that's a conclusion that she would be satisfied with. I want to end by returning to my parallel with the silhouette and showing you a photograph. Here is Dico performing a ritual called Fakwa. Um, what was the date? 9th of December 1985. Um, it's a ritual to expel coughs. Um, and cold, so it'd be a very timely one to perform now. Um, and 
Then I want to say that what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to give substance to, is rather the following image. And I hope that by the end of these lectures I can persuade you that this might be properly called an anthropological silhouette. Thank you very much.